not a, not a chart, but a, a handout. As always, a supplement to this session. Oh, and let me reiterate the intention of this class. Uh, from day one, well, almost day one, um, all of these charts that we've handed out, and including these, these handouts, um, the idea is, it's all up to you. If you don't want to do this, that's fine. That's your business. But the idea is that you have them to use as a reference during the session or at home. You can make notes on them, whatever. They're yours. But if you like, at the end of the class, which is fast approaching, uh, at the end of the class, you, you put them in your envelope, hand them back, and I will bind them for you. Um, just, just like this. Um, replacing any that are missing uh, or that are just so bunged up that we don't want to use them. Uh, so, and then we'll give those back. It's intriguing to me as we approach the end of this study to discover that the most troublesome texts, those that have been the bane of my responsibilities as a teacher, are to be found not as anticipated in the Revelation, but in the prophecies of Ezekiel, a servant of God who was granted truly disturbed visions. As you're reading through the Bible, you get to Ezekiel, and even in the first chapter, you say, whoa, what is this? How am I to digest this. In the handout today that is part of this session, you'll find the first of two changes of position. First, whereas I originally subscribed to the predominant dispensational position that the fulfillment of Ezekiel's temple, described in chapters 40 to 48 of Ezekiel, will be in the millennium, will be fulfilled, it will be built, it will be fulfilled, we'll see it in the millennium. I've recently seen the error of my ways in that. And I've now embraced a minority position that the temple as described has not and will not be built. And the argument for that is found in the handout. Second, back in session 44, I outlined my reasons for placing the fulfillment of Ezekiel 38 and 39, that the famous Gog and Magog passage, or in English, Gog and Magog, uh, in Revelation 20, verses 7 to 10. That's where I placed it after Satan is released from the abyss. I've not done a reversal on this, but instead a, a softening of that position. There are indeed similarities between the two passages, as well as discrepancies. The case can be made 
or disputed in either direction. Ralph H. Alexander, in his commentary on Ezekiel in the Expositor's Bible Commentary, holds to this position with a solid hermeneutical argument for its placement after the millennium, where I have put it. While MacArthur and Walvard offer less detailed arguments, and in my opinion, less persuasive arguments, for placing it before the millennium, associating it with the Armageddon narrative. I still favor its placement at the end of the millennium, but have a little more respect today for the arguments against it. So, in other words, hey, you're on your own. Now we come to the final battle. We closed the previous session by reading the first three verses of chapter 21, a description of the beginning of the eternal state in a new Jerusalem on a new earth, inaugurating an endless time of holiness and purity. Even though the millennium has been under the rule of Christ Jesus, those thousand years in the eschaton have not resulted in a time of purity and holiness. As I said at the end of our last session, during this time of peace with Messiah on his earthly throne, human flesh, as well as the earth itself, will still be fallen with inherent sin. It will still be necessary after the thousand years for the Godhead to create a new earth, a new heavens and supply them with a new earthly throne for not just the Son, but the Father as well. When one steps back for a moment and looks at the broad view, one realizes that the whole of the eschaton, from the rapture through the tribulation and millennium and the great white throne judgment, to the consignment of even death itself to the lake of fire. We realize that all of this has been the Lord God's systematic eradication of the wicked on earth and even evil itself. That's why the title of this session is The End of All Things Evil. In God's economy, death itself is evil. For it was not part of His original creation until sin elbowed its way into Eden through the villainy of Satan. Thus, death too, as if personified, must go into the place of eternal suffering. At the same time, the Lord God is using these judgments, these weapons and earthly upheavals to demonstrate His Lordship and profound glory. All this climaxes, but does not end. In a three-act play, the climax... Whoa! Look at that. Hello. (laughs) What a deal. Today is the day. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. 
Okay. Where was I before I saw that face sitting out there? All this climaxes but does not end. Oh, I was talking about a three-act play. The climax doesn't come at the very end of the play, the last scene of the play. The climax, pl- climax usually comes... In the, I mean, think of, think of Ben-Hur. When, when does the, the chariot race come? There's a lot that comes after the chariot race in the third act. No charge for that, no charge. But it come, the climax comes with the destruction from heaven of Satan's final army and is being consigned to the lake of fire. The Apostle Paul foretold this as well as the great white throne judgment in 1 Corinthians 15, 24-26. Then comes the end. When he hands over the kingdom to the God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. But now let's get back to our timeline. The millennium is drawing to a close, and as it does, things will begin happening at an accelerated pace. By the way, some have conjectured that those living and born during the millennium will not die until the final judgment, if then. In other words, they're saying that once you're born in the millennium, you never die. The Bible doesn't say that. Only that natural life will be extended. Let me read from Isaiah 65, verse 20. No longer will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not live out his days. For the youth will die at the age of 100, and the one who does not reach the age of 100 will be thought accursed. So this passage speaks of extended life and perhaps an absence of illness but it does not remove natural death. Many are surprised that after 1,000 years with Christ Jesus in charge on earth, Satan will be able to form a huge army against him. William Host writes this, The golden age of the kingdom will last a thousand years, during which righteousness will reign and peace prosperity, and the knowledge of God be universally enjoyed. But this will not entail universal conversion, and all profession must be tested. Will not a thousand years under the beneficent sway of Christ and the manifested glory of God suffice to render men immune to His, that is, Satan's temptations? Will they not have radically changed for the better and become by the altered conditions of life and the absence of satanic temptations, children of God and lovers of His will? Alas, it will be proved once more that man, whatever his advantages and environment, apart from the grace of God and the new birth, remains at heart only evil 
and at enmity with God. And that will still hold true during the millennium. Now let's read our first portion. Revelation chapter 20. Let's read verses 7 to 10. And when the thousand years are expired, (coughs) Satan shall be loosed out of his prison and shall go out to deceive the nations which are in the four quarters of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, the number of whom is as of the sand of the sea. And they went up on the breadth of the earth and compassed the camp of the saints about and the beloved city. And fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. And the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are, and shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. It's fair to ask the question, why does God release Satan? You got him locked up. You got him in a good place. Why release him? Well, God himself through the prophet Ezekiel gives us the answer in Ezekiel 38, verses 14 to 16. Why don't you turn there? Some things make sense in Ezekiel. Chapter 38, beginning with verse 14. Therefore prophesy, son of man, And say to Gog, Thus says the Lord God, On that day when my people Israel are living securely, will you not know it? Will you come from your place out of the remote... I'm sorry, that's not a question. You will come from your place out of the remote parts of the north, you and many peoples with you, all of them riding on horses, a great assembly and a mighty army. And you will come up against my people Israel like like a cloud to cover the land. Now note here. It shall come about in the last days that I will bring you against my land so that the nations may know me when I am sanctified through you before their eyes, O Gog. In these final days, the Lord God has two priorities. To punish and eradicate evil and to make clear to those who survive that he alone is calling all the shots so as to glorify himself. He will be glorified. And he has done this throughout history. Not just in the eschaton. He will glorify himself through the acts of even evil individuals, whether it's Pharaoh in Egypt or some other unbeliever, He does this, and it doesn't always make sense to us, maybe in retrospect sometimes, but he uses these situations to bring glory to himself. And if there is anyone in this army who has not read Revelation 20 and so is confused by the Lord's statement, he will be painfully surprised once the army has surrounded Jerusalem. We're not told how long it will take Satan to gather his army, 
but we are told how he accomplishes it. Quote, He will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for the war. End quote. To the end, Satan remains a gifted liar. And here in one of his final acts, he puts that skill to good use. The account is coldly matter-of-fact. The vast army surrounds Israel, and fire came down from heaven and devoured them. Just like that. No announcement. Just happens. So, get the picture. Here's Jerusalem. Here's Israel, which is already tiny. And Jerusalem in it. Remember what has happened thus far. The earth has been changed. Mountains have lowered. Valleys have risen. It's a plain. So this army gathers on that plain around Israel, around Jerusalem. Millions. Ready to invade Jerusalem. Everyone in that army but one is killed by fire from heaven. The sole survivor, spared from the consuming flames, will be Satan, whom I'm sure has indeed read Revelation 20. Those destroyed will have to be raised from the dead so as to stand trial before the throne. For their commander, Satan, no trial is necessary. He'll be perp-walked right into the lake of fire. And in the narrative, there he dwells, being tormented for eternity. So let us not give the enemy of everything dear to us any more of our time. He's done. In the battle of Armageddon, God permit, that's prior to the millennium, God permits Antichrist to harm his chosen people before coming to their rescue in the person of the Messiah. This time he permits none of that, but consumes the enveloping army before it can fire its first shot. Now let's read the second portion of our, right behind you. Revelation 20, verses 11 to 15. Then I saw a great white throne in him who was seated on it. From his presence, from his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Now we've arrived at the final judgment. In the final day's narrative, this is a fascinating moment. Not just from what we're told, but from what we're not told. 
One of the things we're not told is what happens to the still-living, regenerate followers of Christ and unregenerate coming out of the millennium. As mentioned in our previous session, the millennium begins with only believers populating the earth. Yet, they remain in fallen flesh. They are not in glorified bodies. As the generations of their descendants proceed, many of them will not be believers which offers a rich source of rebels to join Satan in his final battle against Christ. We can probably probably assume safely that the living unregenerate will be judged before the great white throne, although they are not mentioned. It only mentions those who have been brought to life, who have been resurrected to stand trial. At some point, their bodies must be translated into bodies that will not be consumed in the, entire, in the eternal fire of hell. But we're not told that. Likewise, the remaining believers in flesh must be translated into eternal glorified bodies, much as Enoch, Genesis 5.24, Elijah, 2 Kings 2.11, and the raptured church. They'll have to have new glorified bodies, but we're not told when that will happen. But the real focus of this moment is on the throne itself. The one sitting on it and its setting, especially the setting. This is, this is Melchizedek stuff. This is great. This is good stuff. Again, we're not told precisely who is doing the judges. It says he. Happily, the NASB and New King James versions at least put the him in verse 11 in uppercase. Thank you. We can readily agree with most commentators that this is God in the person of the glorified Christ Jesus. And this based on such passages as John 5, 21 to 22. Thank you, Pastor, for taking my passage from me. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son also gives life to to whom He wishes. For not even the Father judges anyone, but He has given all judgment to the Son. And Acts 10.42, where Peter declares that Jesus is the one who has been appointed by God as judge of the living and the dead. So it has to be Jesus on the throne. God in the person of Jesus. Think of this moment as a logical outflow of the last thousand years. Picture it. Appreciate the flow of the scenes and events. For the last 1,000 years, Christ Jesus has been physically ruling from a throne established in Jerusalem. He has reigned as absolute sovereign over all the nations of the world. He releases Satan from the abyss 
And sometime thereafter, Israel, and specifically Jerusalem, is surrounded by an immense army numbering in the millions. In Luke 9, brothers James and John had volunteered to, quote, command fire to come down from heaven and consume, end quote, the inhospitable Samaritans. Remember that passage? Come on, let us, we, we can do this. We're, a, we're a, apostles. We, we can do this. We can call down fire and get them. And Jesus said no. He rebu- rebuked them. Pointing out that He had not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. Luke nine fifty one to 56 But as I've said repeatedly, this is a different dispensation. This is a Messiah with a different agenda. How does Jesus deal with this army? Does He speak a word as He had a thousand years earlier? No, He calls down fire from heaven to consume them. And this Holocaust just may be... This is something I, something new to me. This Holocaust, destroying this army just may be the preliminary stroke against the old earth. This may be the beginning, the first stroke in the making, the getting rid of the old earth to, get, to make a new earth. For almost immediately, John sees Christ on His glowing pure white throne sitting not in Jerusalem, get this, not in Jerusalem, but somewhere in space, disengaged from all temporal or heavenly foundations, a throne and a king, quote, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away and no place was found for them. Just the throne of God with Christ on it, judge, the last judgment in nothingness. Nothing. Melchizedek stuff. This is good stuff. The Apostle Paul in Colossians tells us that Christ Jesus was that part of God who created the universe. For by Him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through Him and for Him. Colossians 1.16 Now He is the one who has just destroyed it. And there are some commentators who say, no, they can't. He wouldn't destroy earth. He made it. He made it good. It's, it's good. J.A. Seiss argue, argues against total destruction of the old earth, favoring a renewal, cleansing. Since Christ made it originally perfect, good. But this passes too lightly over the depths to which this perfect world has been corrupted by sin and depravity. To such an extent that this physical earth literally groans. 
because of what has become of it. Romans 8, 20-23. What we have before us in verse 11 is the precise moment after the universe has been destroyed. And I realized this morning, no extra charge for this, this speaks against other worlds, doesn't it? Life out there? Because for this earth, there will come a day when God in Christ will wipe out everything, the entire universe. But before this is the moment after the universe has been destroyed, but before the new earth and new heaven has been created, Around the throne of Christ there is nothing, nothing. All has fled away. Remember, the word translated heaven, Uranus, in the Greek, can refer to the immediate sky, where the birds fly, the clouds, space, the universe, or even the place where God dwells. The same word is used for all three of those heavens. In this moment, there is Christ upon his throne, surrounded by millions of resurrected dead and absolutely nothing else. We have the Apostle Peter's startling description of this destruction in 2 Peter 3, starting with verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning? And the elements will melt with intense heat. But according to his promise, we are looking for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Now you may note, Peter there puts heavens in the plural, whereas in Revelation it's singular. In either case, In either case, that doesn't sound like a renewal or cleansing, does it? That sounds like utter destruction. I especially like how John MacArthur describes this. Here's what he writes. After describing the vision of the judge on his throne, John noted the startling reality that from his presence, earth and heaven fled away. That amazing, incredible statement describes the uncreation of the universe, which my spell checker says is not a word. The earth will have been reshaped by the devastating judgments of the tribulation, and, and I've inserted the word somewhat restored during the millennial kingdom. 
yet it will still be tainted with sin and subject to the effects of the fall, decay, and death. Hence it must be destroyed, since nothing corrupted by sin will be permitted to exist in the eternal state. God will in its place create a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away. MacArthur continues, The present earth and heaven will not merely be moved or reshaped, since John saw in his vision that no place was found for them. They will be uncreated and go totally out of existence. This is nothing less than the sudden, violent termination of the universe. And he gives a rather long list of references. Then he quotes Donald Gray Barnhouse, who wrote this, There is to be an end of the material heavens and earth which we know. It is not that they are to be purified and rehabilitated, but that the reverse of creation is to take place. They are to be uncreated. As they came from nothing at the word of God, they are to be sucked back into nothingness by the same word of God. This is good stuff. That was Donald Gray Barnhouse, quoted by John MacArthur. And now the focus in this drama is the great white throne of judgment from which Christ will dispense his final verdict on wickedness and sin. There will be no altar call, no last chance invitation to repent. Many interpret various scripture passages such as the one before us to suggest that there will be graduated measures of judgment. That though all will be sent to the lake of fire, hell, once there some will experience less torment than others. The next verse seems to bear this out. Verse 12. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books. Not the book of life, the other books. According to their deeds. Why bother with that if they're all just going to be sent to the lake of fire? The Godhead keeps meticulous records on what humanity does on earth. And these volumes are open to inform the verdicts to be handed down. Since almost all scholars interpret this final judgment as being for the wicked alone, this verse indicates two gates through which each must pass. Let me pause here just for a moment. This reinforces... I think this reinforces the fact that it is all just the unregenerate here, the wicked. Because we're told that God keeps vast libraries of everything everyone does. But for believers, He doesn't remember our sins. They're covered. 
They're sent away. He doesn't itemize them. He doesn't pull them out of the library and say, ah, but this. So I think this reinforces the, the, the position that this is just the wicked. There are no believers here. No Christians. No, no, no one who's been regenerated. But the first gate they pass through is found in verse 15. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. That's the first gate. If you're not in Christ, lake of fire. This is the book of life where every name of everyone who is in Christ is found. If you're not in there, then consignment to the lake of fire is declared. That is, the second death. Verse 6. The second gate, however, is more detailed and nuanced. The books or scrolled are consulted as to the works of each person. Quote, And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. End quote. And as I said, one might rightly ask, well, why bother with this if all are punished the same? So there may indeed be graduations of torment in hell. Verse 13 tells from whence all these individuals came. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged every one of them according to their deeds. This is the second resurrection, the resurrection of judgment, as John 5 puts it. I assume that'll be next week in the sermon. Ooh, I got the jump on him. They are those who died without faith in the Old Testament, without Christ in the New Testament from all generations since Eden. They come from those who died or were buried at sea and those who were buried in the earth, as well as those in Hades, which is the temporary abode of the wicked dead. Note for those with the King James, this verse has hell, which is a poor translation, should be Hades. They're different. They're not interchangeable. Those two words are not synonymous. Hades is the temporary place where the wicked go for a while. Hell is where you go for eternity. All these will be judged and delivered to hell, the lake of fire, which is the second death. We cannot say for certain what the lake of fire will literally be like, for it exists like God's dwelling place, the third heaven, on a separate plane outside the laws of this universe. Hades, or sometimes called Sheol, like the abyss, is indeed subterranean, down, inside the earth. But at this point, that earth will have ceased to exist. But hell continues forever as a place of unbearable heat, darkness, 
isolation, estrangement, and of unending sorrow. Verse 15 gives us the bottom line. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. We today still live in the church age. A dispensation in which Satan is very much alive and active here on earth. We know that very well. He is a very good liar. A remarkably good liar. And does his best every day to delude this world into believing his lies. The mark of his expertise as a liar is his remarkable level of success. Indeed, so successful that most of society, sadly, even many who call themselves Christians, actually wants to, prefer, to believe Satan's lies instead of the simple, clear truth, truth of Scripture. They desire the lie over the truth. Some believe, for example, that hell is just annihilation. When one dies after a brief period of punishment, just, just, just a brief period of punishment, take your licking, one just ceases to exist. Passing into nothingness. God's Word clearly speaks against this. When Satan is cast into hell, the beast and the false prophet will have been sent there 1,000 years earlier, and they're still there. The devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are. does not say were. They are there. And they're still there. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever, all three of them. Forever and ever. Even the way station Hades is a miserable place of flames and intolerable heat. As we read in Jesus' story of Lazarus and the rich man from Luke 16. In Hades, Jesus says, the rich man lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue. For I am in agony in this flame. And that's not even hell yet. That's Hades. This is not a picture of annihilation. Of nothingness. It's a picture of eternal torment. Even so, our culture today is so infected by the rot of unbelief that, as Wayne Grudem writes, quote, among liberal theologians who do not accept the absolute truthfulness of the Bible, there is probably no one today, no one today, who believes in the doctrine of eternal conscious punishment. Even though we've just read what it says. 
it's stated clearly. Grudem also offers the text of a hymn in which the following is the third verse by William B. Collier. But sinners, filled with guilty fears, behold his wrath prevailing. For they shall rise and find their tears and sighs are unavailing. The day of grace is past and gone. Trembling they stand before the throne, all unprepared to meet Him. The bottom line is this. If prior to your first death or this second resurrection, you are not found in the book of life, you go to the lake of fire. The second death. You literally go to hell. Where you will live in torment for all of eternity. And any time we as Christ's witnesses on earth dilute or soften this truth when speaking to the unregenerate, we're serving the will of not our Lord and Savior, but Satan. He's the one who wants people to believe that, no, that's, that's just a myth. It's not a myth. We have before us only two or possibly three more sessions of this study, and everyone said, Amen. We will meet next week, March 26th, and the next, April 2nd. Then there will be two weeks without class. First, Resurrection Sunday, followed on April 16th by our quarterly congregational meeting. If we've not completed the class before the two-week break, we will return to finish it on April 23. But that should be, yeah, they'll, they'll cut my mic off after that. Our Father in heaven, you have painted a grim picture for us in this passage. Not that we will experience it necessarily. Perhaps there is someone in this room now who is in danger of witnessing this and experiencing it. Perhaps only you know. But it will be terrible. And we do no one any favors by telling them it's just a myth. It's very true, very real. So though we tremble at what these people will experience, we thank You and we praise You. And we especially praise our Lord Jesus, the Christ, who made our salvation possible. Without Him, we would be the ones going to the fire. Because of His love and His unselfish Sacrifice.
we will not see that. We give you all the glory for that, as well as Him. And we thank you in His name, the name of Jesus. Amen.